Well, the purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. Well, let's open up our Bibles to John's gospel one more time. Our text for this morning is John chapter 21, verses 15 through 25. If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one with you this morning, no worries. There should be a blue hardback version near you and a chair in front of you in the rack. Uh, if, you'll, if you need to use that Bible, we encourage you to use it, and you'll find our text for this morning beginning on page 907. Again, if you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles, you'll find our text beginning on page 907. And as you're turning there, brothers and sisters, this is the last sermon in our series through John's Gospel. Lord willing, Pastor Gary will be preaching from Hebrews next week, and then we will begin a series through the Old Testament book of Proverbs the following week. On September 6th, 2020, we began this series through John's Gospel. We were partially homeless, meeting in a school parking lot with our best canvas chairs and canopies set up over pavement, seeking to praise the Lord as personal trainers led workouts on the playground behind us. Things are different for us as a local church now, praise the Lord. But in all of that, John has been our faithful guide, calling us week by week to see Jesus and to believe in him. This final text will be no different. The gospel concludes with the same call to faith in Jesus that has dripped from every passage we have explored together as we have walked through this gospel together. We have seen the Lord Jesus living, teaching, loving, healing, feeding, suffering, dying, and rising in order to save his people from their sins. And he gave us the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, the words of Jesus that we will read in the next moment land on every one of us here as Jesus tells Peter, and through Peter tells us, you follow me. Now, follow along as I read our text. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Distressed, vintage, lived in, broken in. These are all terms that we can regularly find on items available for us to purchase. I remember watching a mini documentary a few years back on a vintage t-shirt salesman to the stars. Basically, this guy would purchase old t-shirts from secondhand thrift shops, or maybe let's not use the word old. He would purchase vintage t-shirts from secondhand thrift shops because that word makes them worth more. And he would purchase ones with everything from NASCAR drivers to bands to all different sorts of themes. And celebrities would regularly contact him and ask him to bring his selection to them so that they could peruse his stock and pay very large sums for these t-shirts. He made really good money. This was his one job. You know, guitar manufacturers will now charge you more for a distressed guitar. You don't even have to go through the hard process of playing a guitar every day, putting your own nicks and scratches on it, or to begin to kind of get a feel for this instrument, let it adapt to you, making it your own. You can pay someone else to do all of that and put scratches and fretware and dings and nicks on the guitar for you. So it looks and feels like you've been playing it for years on end. We all kind of like the vintage look. It's in right now. But the reality is is that breaking in things takes time, patience. Sometimes it can be a painful process. But the reality is is even even worn-in things eventually wear out. They need restoration. And restoration is also very trendy. Restoring furniture, homes, yards, vehicles, guitars, and shoes is a thriving industry that many people like to decorate their homes, their workplaces, and even their bodies with restored items. I was thinking about this this week, and I wonder, why why is that? And I, I think, at least maybe for my own part, the reason that I like restored things is because they just look more real. Their scratches and their dings and their fading speaks to us of longevity. We actually don't want all of the imperfections removed. Sometimes we're we're willing to pay even more for imperfections. 
Well, in our text, we see Peter dinged up, distressed, and a bit worn out. And what we just read, we see there is more sanding and cutting of his soul by the master soul carpenter. The Lord Jesus. As Peter is restored and recommissioned for faithful service to Jesus, and he's even told that he will die for Jesus. There's a picture and a promise in our text, I think, if we look. We see a picture in Peter's restoration. Peter in our text is not soaring upon the heights of spiritual ecstasy. His wounds in the text are real and visible to us. He is aware in this moment of his guilt and his failure. That cannot be erased from his mind. Nor are his failures and his sins erased from church history. No, Peter's failures are immortalized in the Gospels. We see Peter restored. But just as restorations of old things do not hide the previous experiences of the item, Peter's restoration by Jesus will never hide what he did. But the reality of what Jesus does makes it that his past failure does not determine his future usefulness or purpose. In fact, Peter's colossal failure is the stage for the glories of Jesus' Jesus's redemption. His sin becomes the very occasion for us to behold in this text the unfathomable forgiveness and love of God to repentant sinners. We also see a promise in this text. We actually see a promise in Peter's foretold death. Now, it's one thing to read this, maybe like me when you're hearing this this morning or if you've read it this week, you can kind of initially respond to this pronouncement by Jesus with sadness or even shock. Jesus lets Peter know his death will not be quiet or peaceful. Yet, John tells us this promise from Jesus is that Peter will endure as he follows Jesus. And he's going to make it. He will die in a way that glorifies God. Peter will be like his Savior. He will glorify God in his life and in his death. Death will come, but he is reassured that when that day comes, the Lord will preserve his faith as Peter looks to Jesus and follows him. So how will Peter get from a despondent disciple to a courageous martyr? Well, it's not going to be in the blink of an eye, but in a life restored and lived for Jesus. Restored by Jesus and lived for Jesus. And friends, I, I want you to hear that that's for you too. How can you learn not to hide from your past sins, scars, failures, pains, but rather press on in such a way that one day your death may glorify the Lord Jesus? It will be through restoration that only Jesus brings. So I want us to consider two restorations together this morning. First, restored relationship. Restored relationship. I wonder if some of you, if maybe if you've grown up around church or been in churches for portions of your life or most of your life, might find this text actually pretty familiar. You may have read this 
a hundred times or heard it preached many times if you grew up in and around churches. And there's a reason that this text is a familiar text because it is so good. It's a great moment. It's a great portion of the gospel story. This little conversation calls to our hearts as God speaks through his word. What we have is, in miniature, the beautiful picture of how the Lord Jesus restores broken people into right relationship with himself. That's what's happening here. See, breakfast has ended, and Jesus actually engages Peter post-meal with a question. Look at it. It's, It's there in verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? The question is is simple. It's straightforward. Now, there's some question about what the these are that Jesus is referring to. Was Jesus talking about the fish? Meaning, does Peter love Jesus more than his occupation? Or did these mean the other disciples? Was Jesus asking Peter if Peter loved Jesus more than he loved his fellow disciples? Or was Jesus asking Peter if Peter loved Jesus more than the other disciples loved Jesus? On the balance, it seems pretty clear that this text favors the third interpretation. Jesus was asking Peter if Peter loved him more than the other disciples loved him. This is likely because we know Peter had made such claims already, don't we? At the end of chapter 13, after Jesus had washed the disciples in Peter's feet and he said he was leaving, Peter was indignant saying, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And it was Peter, we know, who in chapter 18 pulled out a sword and struck one of Jesus' would-be captors. I mean, even last week, we saw it was Peter who jumps into the water, leaving the fish behind, and the disciples who are still trying to reel in the net because he had to get to Jesus. It seems pretty clear Jesus was asking a question of comparison. And Peter, now seemingly empty of all brashness and bravado that has marked his life to this point, Answers not arrogantly, but honestly. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You see, Peter is affirming two realities with his answer. Reality number one, he really does love Jesus. He really does. He can't help but love his Savior. Reality number two that Peter affirms is that Jesus already knew the answer. Jesus knows the answer to the question. Jesus isn't trying to learn something new here. Jesus isn't asking because he's not sure whether Peter loves him or not. No, this line of questioning has a very different purpose here. But before we do this, I want to... Take a step aside right here and address a common misconception with these verses. Some preachers and homileticians, which is another fancy word for preachers, have made much of the word Jesus uses for love and the word Peter uses for love. 
In a nutshell, the discussion goes something like this. Jesus uses the Greek word agape for love in the first two questions and the Greek word phileo for, his love, for, his, for love in his final question. Peter always using the word phileo. So some have concluded that as the questioning goes on, Jesus is descending to Peter's understanding of love, or that Peter, in his humility, would not dare use the precious word agape to describe his love for Jesus. That wrong understanding is rooted in wrong definitions. Here's what I mean. The words agape and phileo, both meaning love, and they are used interchangeably for love in the New Testament, both good and bad. And in common use, nearly 400 years before Jesus was born, the verb agape was used in many different ways for love. So sometimes you may hear someone say, agape is always a God-centered, unconditional love. Well, the problem is that that same word is used for the way David's son took advantage of his sister with sexual immorality. So we can't really import that universal meaning to love. And in particular, Paul says Demas, who was in love, agape, with the world, has done harm to him. So we, we need not import some overblown theological reality to language that doesn't exist. I mean, what's also interesting is John in John's gospel, especially chapter 11, verses 3 and 4 with Lazarus, Jesus is first said to love phileo, Lazarus, and then in the next verse, he's said to love agape, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So there's not some secret wordplay going on here in the text. There's nothing kind of nefarious or, or overblown in these, these questions with Jesus and Peter, rather just like we're going to see in Jesus' commission to Peter, the slight variation in vocabulary is used for emphasis, not distinction. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Jesus follows Peter's response with the first of three similar answers. He says, he said to him, verse 15, feed my lambs. Now that is significant, and we're going to see that in just a few minutes, but we're going to set that aside for a minute and, and focus on these remaining questions. What is this line of questioning doing before we dig deeper into what this commission, this command means. John tells us that Jesus asks the second and third time with slight variation, do you love me? The second time, he doesn't bring the disciples into the question. Verse 16, it says, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's reply is the same. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then finally, Jesus asks a third time. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here, John opens Peter's heart to us. Verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. If the question started with a small incision by Jesus. Now Jesus has cut deep into Peter with the third time. It hurts him. It hurts him to be asked this by Jesus. Jesus is not unaware of this. 
Jesus knows he is causing him pain. Jesus knows that he's hurting Peter with this line of questions. But just as a surgeon wounds only to remove disease, the great physician of the soul never cuts haphazardly with his scalpel. No, when Jesus performs soul surgery, every wound he gives heals with greater strength and health. Peter is wounded by this repeated question. As one commentator notes, Peter's grief responds and response points to his inability to know in this moment how to prove his love to Jesus beyond saying, I love you. And further, Peter's answer includes a declaration. He says to Jesus, you know everything. What's he doing here? You see, Peter is done trying to come up with another big demonstration of his love, some great statement. He's not coming up with another big promise to never fail Jesus again, even if everybody else does. No, Peter's grief and humiliation is clarifying for him. Jesus knows everything. Nothing Peter can say or do is going to adequately prove his love, and he's failed miserably over and over again to prove it in his own words and his own actions. So what is he banking on? What is he banking on? He just banks on the settled reality that Jesus actually knows that he loves him. As as imperfect and as foolish as he's been at times, he knows that the reality is that you know everything. You know that I love you, Jesus. He's done trying to prove himself. He simply acknowledges, you know what's true. And then Peter receives that third commission, second and third commission to care for the sheep. For every denial Peter uttered, even with cursing, this battered And broken disciple is given the opportunity to affirm his devotion to Christ. And who gives him the opportunity? The very one he denied. Jesus, the only one who could actually restore Peter for his sin, restores him from his failures. Jesus actually goes into Peter's heart, points at the dark box and says, we're going to open it together, you and me. We're going to pull the lid off this thing. And he forces him to look at it. Bringing back to Peter's mind the lowest point of his life, not to push him into the box of shame for the rest of his life, but to empty it of its power and to flood this darkness with light. It's as if Jesus Jesus is saying to Peter, yes, Peter, you failed, but I am the savior of failures and wrecks like you. I came for you because I love you, and I'm not done with you, no matter what you think about this. I mean, isn't that beautiful? I mean, Peter is brought low. He is made to look at the thing that hurts him in order to be humble, that he might be ready to serve the Lord afresh, not from a place of denying failure, but from a restored relationship with God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. 
Friends, the process of restoration is rarely easy and rarely painless. It involves removing years of caked up and baked on residue. It involves pulling apart things that have stuck together over time. Peter's life of self-confident assurance had to be cut away from him. Peter's shame over his failure had to be dealt with. The structural weaknesses of Peter's heart had to be addressed before the gospel restoration could begin. And friends, hear me, though the circumstances of Peter's restoration are unique, the story of restoration by Jesus is not. All of us have failed the Lord. All of us have denied God. We've done it from our earliest days on earth. We are born haters of God, not lovers of God. Why? Because it's our heritage. Friends, the Garden of Eden was where our relationship with God was broken. When our first parents sinned against the Lord, every descendant from them shared in the rebellion, and we are rebels by nature and by choice. Why do we rebel? Because we like it. We are not born in a right relationship with God. We are born into a broken relationship with God. Yet, oh man, yet, The Lord Jesus has the power and the authority to restore that broken relationship that we have. And he did it by being broken for us in our place that we might be restored to fellowship with God. Friend, if you don't have a right relationship with God, there's good news for you today. You can have it through faith in Jesus. The restoration the Savior brings was not just for Peter, but for every broken sinner who turns to Jesus in faith. He accomplished the restoration, the work of restoration, by dying in our place on the cross and rising from the grave, conquering death, fully satisfying the debt our sin carries. And if you want this restoration in your own life, it can be yours. Jesus offers himself to sinners Not perfectly shiny religious people. No, Jesus came here for your brokenness. He came here to restore the relationship, the one relationship that matters more than anything else, your relationship with your creator, the one true and living God. He desires you not for what you can bring him. You can bring nothing to him, but for what he can bring to you. And friend, I would encourage you, if you need to talk about this, don't let today pass you by. You can catch me after the service or anyone you've seen up here. We would all count it a privilege to be able to talk to you about how you can be restored to God through Jesus. But Christians here, brothers and sisters in Christ, this restoration is for us too. I doubt anybody here, any Christian, would be so arrogant to say that they've never felt cold to Christ never felt unsure of Jesus' love or the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe right now you're thinking, I have grown cold to the Lord. Or maybe you're here thinking that the Lord has grown cold to you. Maybe you've stopped pursuing Him and instead you're pursuing replacements for Him. If you're honest, if you found yourself around this 
fire with Jesus, you'd actually try not to make eye contact with him. You'd actually probably just try to avoid being noticed. Or maybe you actually might want to be around this this fire to give him a piece of your mind, to demand that he fix something that's not going right in your life. Brother or sister, this text says there is restoration for us too. And Jesus calls each of us through this text to look at the darkness of our life and sin and say, no, I love you more than that. I love you more than this. That's what restoration looks like. It's God removing the calluses from our hearts and souls by enabling us to respond to the loving pursuit of his son, Jesus. We respond in faith, giving Jesus our love and devotion. And brother, sister, the Lord Jesus is the master restorer. He doesn't make any errors. He doesn't cut deeper than necessary. And he does not fail to remove any obstacle that we have set up in our hearts to him. He is not a halfway savior. No, he restores us fully to a right relationship with the Father. You see, restored relationship is both a fixed reality and an ongoing process. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have been restored to a right relationship with God through the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin and giving us faith. Theologians call this justification. We are justified before God because of Jesus. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And we are righteous because Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's restored relationship. But our restoration is also ongoing. The Holy Spirit, working through God's word and God's people, continues to restore us from our brokenness, conforming us little by little into the image of Jesus. Theologians call this sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus as we look to him and follow him. This is our ongoing restoration by God that will not be complete until we die or the Lord Jesus comes back. You see, in our text, this moment is pivotal for Peter. It's a seriously momentous occasion. But he's not fully sanctified here, right? No, no, Jesus is restoring the relationship that Peter had hindered by his sins and failures, and he's setting Peter back on the path of sanctification but he gives him even more. Peter's given not only a restored relationship, he receives a a second restoration. Peter receives a restored purpose. A restored purpose. So we already talked about how Jesus asked Peter three times whether Peter loved him, and Peter responded each time that he, he did love Jesus and that Jesus knew it. And after each affirmation Peter gave, Jesus followed up with a specific charge. First, in verse 15, feed my lambs. Then in verse 16, tend my sheep. Then in verse 17, feed my lambs. Now, I've already kind of given you the trailer here. Just as with the different uses of the word love by Peter and Jesus, the vocabulary difference here pushes emphasis, not distinction. All three of these commands fit under one heading. Peter is commissioned to shepherd Jesus' sheep, which is stunning, 
considering who we're talking about. This once Jesus-denying disciple is reinstated by Jesus and given a privileged purpose by his Lord. Peter is charged not just with new work. He is given the very ministry of the good shepherd to his sheep. I mean, what grace! This is amazing. Jesus doesn't restore the relationship with Peter and say, okay, good, now you go hide in the corner because you're a loser and you're never really going to amount to anything. I can't really do anything with you because you're just going to mess it up. Can't really trust you with anything else. No. Our Lord Jesus doesn't restore us in that way, brothers and sisters. He doesn't do that. Like a small child learning to walk, having fallen down and bloodied themselves, Jesus comes to Peter, cleans up and binds up the wounds of Peter and says, all right, let's keep going. Think about the grace of this church. Peter is healed and restored, but the restoration that Jesus brings to Peter doesn't stop with the healing, but with the privilege and the joy of a restored purpose. The healing is precious. It's truly precious. But the purpose is life-defining and life-giving. I mean, Peter's purpose points back to Jesus' promise that he will be with them through the Holy Spirit. Jesus not only restores relationship with Peter, but promises that this relationship will keep going. So I think my favorite book in the Harry Potter series is the one called The Order of the Phoenix. But, well, I heard that. That's a good, there we go. Got a, pow, uh, a Potter hand. I wouldn't say a pothead. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm a Harry Potter fan in the congregation. But if you've, if you've read this book, <laughs> all right, let's get back into it. All right, all right. But if you've read The Order of the Phoenix, One hard reality in the book is how Dumbledore ignores Harry through so much of the book. And J.K. Rowling does a good job by inviting us into Harry's struggle with this changed relationship dynamic. He feels abandoned, cast off from the only real father figure he has in his life. And he's filled with pain and anger and frustration. Now what we know as readers, is that the relationship hadn't changed. Dumbledore was ignoring Harry to protect him. But we don't see that until the end of the book. But in reality, nothing had changed about Harry's purpose or his identity or even his growing power and skill. But for Harry, the loss of relationship with Dumbledore was more than he could bear at times. I submit that if Jesus had simply restored Peter and then stuffed him out of sight, Peter would have withered away from lack of purpose in communion. Jesus doesn't restore Peter and then shelve him. No, he restores him and gives him a purpose. And as readers of John's gospel, we can piece together what Jesus means in this threefold commission to Peter. Peter was to shepherd the flock of God. Notice that each time Jesus says, my sheep. Peter's shepherding commission was not to own the sheep, but to care for them as an under-shepherd. 
You can see how his understanding of this charge deepened. Listen to what Peter would write to Christians years later in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. He writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And listen, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So in essence, Peter tells these pastors, shepherd Jesus' sheep, feed his lambs, Tend his sheep. As Peter grew in his own understanding of his restored purpose, he passes that purpose on to local church pastors. And we get a picture in his words of Jesus' shepherding commission. But we're still left with the question, though. How will Peter feed the sheep? What is the food He's supposed to give them. I think Jesus told us himself in John chapter 6, declaring, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You remember, we know Jesus isn't promoting cannibalism. He's speaking of feeding on him by faith, believing his promises. At the risk of being oversimple or oversimplifying this, Peter is charged with giving people Jesus. That's what he's supposed to do. His purpose was to give the bread of life to starving sinners. He would do this first through evangelism, heralding the good news to lost sinners that they might receive Christ and be brought into the fold of God. We know that Jesus has has sheep from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the only way Jesus' sheep are identified is their response to the gospel. Peter was to declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with courage and boldness that the sheep of the Lord Jesus might hear the voice of their shepherd and follow. Likewise, Peter was an elder in the church of God. He became a pastor. Which, friends, if you know the word pastor itself, it's a shepherding word. Peter would tend and feed the lambs of Jesus through giving them the bread of life too. 
Peter would give Jesus to the church through proclamation. First at Jerusalem, later through his letters, Peter would continue to feed Christians the bread of life, shepherding them to heaven. And this restored purpose for Peter would be carried out through a life of following Jesus. What would be the fuel in the tank for Peter? How would he be able to continue in this renewed purpose? Friends, I think what we've seen in this text, he's learned that it's not going to be in his own strength and his own might. It's not the strength of his love. No, Jesus helps Peter to see that the well he's going to continually need to return to is the well of living water. He himself could only shepherd Jesus' sheep if he himself was following the good shepherd. That's where John takes us next in verse 18. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. It's not too far or strange to say that in this moment, Peter is told to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Jesus. For Peter, the cross would be both daily trusting Jesus and literally taking up a cross to die for his devotion to Jesus. The phrase Jesus uses, stretch out your hands, is a common phrase to describe crucifixion. And from at least two sources in, a church, in church history, we have indication that Peter was martyred by crucifixion. One of the earliest extra-biblical resources is from a disciple named Clement of Rome, writing to Christians to follow the example of the brave Christian martyrs before them and lay down their lives for Jesus. He wrote this, But to cease from the examples of old time, let us come to those who contended in the days nearest to us. Let us take the noble examples of our own generation. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and contended unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles, Peter, who because of unrighteous jealousy suffered not one or two, but many trials, and having thus given his testimony, went to the glorious place which was his due. Clement, obviously aware of John's gospel and the prophecy concerning Peter's death, cites the glorious place that Peter went to, referencing this, pro this prophecy of Jesus, meaning his death. Later, the church father Tertullian wrote, We read of the lives of Caesars at Rome, Nero, was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. The clear testimony is that the prophecy that Peter would remain faithful to Jesus and die faithful to Jesus is verified by history itself. It's true. But then look at the interaction with me beginning in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John's destiny and calling were not Peter's concern. Jesus was Peter's concern. Peter didn't need to know what was going to happen to John. Peter needed to follow Jesus regardless of what happens to other people. This is true for us as well. We are not to be concerned with God's will for the lives of others. No, our first and primary focus is Jesus. Now, this isn't isolationism or a cause for us to set out on our own independence from other Christians. That's silly. Peter didn't receive this instruction and detach from other Christians. No, rather, Peter loved other Christians and served local churches, but he did so as a result of his own personal devotion to following Jesus. See, John wrote his gospel to make followers of Jesus and to help followers of Jesus. Because that's what a disciple is. It's simply that, one who is following Jesus, not one who likes things about Jesus or admires Jesus or likes some of Jesus' ideas or even fancies some of his miracles. No, a follower of Jesus, according to John, is one who has abandoned any notion of doing things on their own or living on their own terms or being a meddler in others' lives and calling. Instead, a disciple is one who has decided they are going to live on Jesus' terms alone. That's what a follower does. They don't determine their own path their own place, their own plans. No, a follower has entrusted those decisions to someone else. Otherwise, they'd be the leader. A follower of Jesus submits to Jesus in every area of life. As Christians, we are following, not leading. Peter was commissioned as a follower of Jesus first before he'd ever lead other Christians. But Jesus' words to Peter are his words to us. He looks at each of us through this text this morning with the words, You follow me. That's the first reality of a restored purpose. If our relationship is restored to God through Christ, our restored purpose begins and ends with those two words, Follow Jesus. The whole of Christian life from conversion to heaven is summed up in those simple words. If you are a Christian, that's your destiny. Follow Jesus. So I wonder, if you claim Christ, can you say, are you following Jesus? I mean, the answer is not a mystery. It can be known. You know you're following Jesus if you're doing what he says. So I wonder, are you following Jesus? John has written his entire gospel to push us to this question. Will I follow Jesus or will I deny him? Will I believe Jesus or will I believe Satan? Will I trust God or will I trust myself? And friends, hear me. The glorious news of John's gospel is that if we turn to Jesus, believe in him, we have a restored relationship with the God of the universe, and we have a restored purpose for the rest of our lives. 
You may be distressed, battered, dinged up, broken, and maybe we'll just use the word, you may be vintage because of your sin. But Jesus saves and restores every sinner who comes to him in faith. Is that you? Have you come to him? I wonder if you read this text with me this morning and you realize you've wandered from Christ. Do you need to hear Jesus remind you of your purpose? Remind you to follow him? You know, John ends his gospel with what could account to a kind of a curious phrase. The last verse he writes is this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Strange ending to a gospel. But I think he's pointing us to heaven. Because can we not say humans and historians are so curious about what we don't know of Jesus? And all sorts of foolish speculation and false gospels have been discovered and spread, promising us details of Jesus' childhood and ministry. And John just saves us from such stupidity. He reminds us the riches of Christ are unsearchable. They are beyond what this world could contain, even if every square inch of the world was covered by books describing the life of Jesus. But as we consider heaven, we will for all eternity be discovering new and glorious wonders of the riches of God's wisdom in Christ. John's gospel wasn't written to give every detail of every jewel of the person of the work of Jesus because that's what all of eternity will be filled with. We will be discovering that forever. Heaven can never be boring because God cannot be boring. It's not like we get to heaven and immediately we understand everything. No, heaven will be an eternal unfolding of God's glorious glories and our eternal wonder at the unending beauties of such a glorious and holy God. Only a holy God. How do we get there? How do we get to this place? Well, it's not by searching for new books about Jesus here, but believing the revelation he's given and following Jesus until that day when our eternal life transforms from faith sight. And as a church, one of the main ways he has given us to refocus our devotion to him and to live out our restored relationship with God and to understand our restored purpose in this life is the Lord's Supper. We see in the bread and the cup the reminder of the one who was broken for us that we might be restored through his life and death. We also see in the bread and the cup our restored purpose as a follower of Jesus to proclaim his gospel until he comes. The Lord's Supper is how we remember we are in Christ and what we are called to as Christians. So as we come to the table, let me offer a few instructions that we might celebrate the supper well together this morning.